Lord God and Father, we ask that by the gracious indwelling of your Holy Spirit, we may hear this morning what you want us to hear in this, your holy word, that we may be comforted and encouraged and challenged in all our faith and in all our duty. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Those of you who follow the Christian liturgical year will know that today is the fourth Sunday after Easter, the 3rd of May. And along with countless churches across the world, we here at Magdalen Road Church have, over these last Sundays, been reflecting on and meditating on the great Easter story, the great Easter message, that central claim of the Christian faith, that Christ, who was crucified, was bodily raised to life again. And we continue our studies today in the third appearance of Jesus to his disciples, as recorded in John's Gospel. And I'm sure that Love Oxford, which is on at this very moment, led by a spectrum of churches across the range in Oxford, I'm sure that in their service this morning they will be proclaiming the centrality of the cross and the resurrection as the good news, as we do here. I want, before we get to our text and look at it in a little detail, I want to set some sense of context and background to what we've got before us. And I want to say that if the bodily resurrection of Christ is true, if he really did come back from the dead, that must have the most profound implications. It actually changes everything, if that is true. The Christian faith depends upon the resurrection of the crucified Christ. And Paul puts this very bluntly and very simply in an absolutely marvelous passage in the first letter of Corinthians, chapter 15. And I'd like to ask you, before the day ends, get a Bible and read 1 Corinthians 15. It's an absolutely marvelous chapter on the resurrection of Jesus. And in it, Paul says this. If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. A very blunt statement. If it's not true, Paul's saying, then it's all a waste of time. 
The resurrection is that critical in our Christian faith. But if it's true, a number of things follow. If it's true, then Jesus is the divine Son of God. If you like, Jesus is God, or Jesus is Lord. My wife and I were rather astonished a few weeks ago when our little four-year-old grandson, whom we were putting to bed with a Bible story, said, Jesus is God. That's what the resurrection authenticates. Just as it follows from the resurrection that what Jesus did on the cross is authenticated and vindicated. Our sins can be forgiven. We can have peace with God. We can be reconciled with God. And because we can be reconciled with God and have peace with him, we can have peace with one another. And that's something the world so desperately needs. There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. It follows also from the resurrection that there is new life in the risen Christ. New life now. We may know him. We may call him our friend. And of course it follows from the resurrection that there is heaven. Where the faithful will spend eternity. If it's true. If it's true. Ian, last week, as he preached our sermon in the morning, rightly said that it's hard to believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Dead men just don't come back to life. Dead people don't come back to life. You don't need to be a doctor or a medic to know that. You know, I don't think those first disciples were any more gullible in this matter than we are. We have a huge amount of knowledge, scientific and technical, that they never had. But they weren't fools. Those first disciples knew that dead men don't come back to life. My experience of death, as I've encountered it in the family or as I encountered it professionally, death is so final. It's so complete. It's so irreversible. You can have someone in the very last hours of their life, perhaps a a very elderly, frail person. And they're unconscious or they're deeply asleep. But they're alive. They're alive. But when they die, it is so final and so irreversible. And so the Easter claim is so incredible. It's so unbelievable that Jesus Christ came back from the dead. But I believe it to be true. I've wrestled with this over many years, and I'm sure we perhaps all have done it various times, perhaps still doing it today. And one of the things that has helped me is a realization that there are some proofs, if you like, or some helps that can convince us. One thing that's been borne in on me over the years is the change in Sabbath observance. Now, take those first Christians, those First Christians were Jews, those disciples were Jews, and they had been brought up very strictly, very traditionally, to honor the Sabbath, the Saturday, the seventh day. That was a day of rest, that was a day of worship, and it was sacred. But if you look at the New Testament, those obligations have been unloaded onto the Sunday, the first day of the week, 
Now, what possibly could have caused that sea change in Jewish religious practice? What event do you think could have happened to bring that about? Well, I think it was the resurrection. Here's another thing that's been borne in on me over the years, the transformation of the disciples. We know the disciples betrayed Jesus, they denied Jesus, they scattered from him, they left him. When they met after the resurrection, they were still meeting in locked rooms, but something changed them. Something changed them into a band of men and women who went out to face suffering and to face persecution and to face martyrdom. And they boldly and courageously proclaimed the gospel in public. What had happened to change them? Why were they transformed? What event was it that could have accounted for that? Well, I think it was the resurrection. And then, of course, there are the appearances. The New Testament does seem to give us, for our conviction, its central argument that Jesus appeared after he was raised to life. He appeared to his disciples. It's the great New Testament proof, if you like, the great New Testament argument. Let me go back to that great chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians, where Paul gives us a little statement. It's a kind of confession. It's a kind of creed. It's quite famous. You'll find it in that chapter 15 at verse 3. Let me read it to you. Paul says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to to, to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. This little creed, this little statement that Paul gives us here, focuses on the appearances of Jesus Christ. Some of you may know the American writer Leo Strobel, who was, I think, a journalist uh, and an atheist, but he came to a, a profound conversion and has written a number of extremely good books. Um, one of them is called The Case for Christ, and I've given away lots of copies of that book to various people over the years, and I commend it. And in that book, he says this, regarding this little passage here that we've read from Corinthians. If the crucifixion was as early as A.D. 30, Paul's conversion was about 32 A.D., Immediately, Paul was ushered into Damascus, where he met with a Christian named Ananias and some other disciples. His first meeting with the apostles in Jerusalem would have been about A.D. 35. At some point along there, Paul was given this creed, which had already been formulated and was being used in the early church. Now, here you have the key facts about Jesus' death for our sins plus a detailed list of those to whom he appeared in resurrected form, all dating back to within two to five years of the events themselves. That's a quite remarkable claim, that this little passage here, this little confession, this creed that focuses on the appearances of Jesus, 
can be dated back to within just a few years of his death and resurrection. I'm sure you can remember plenty of things that went on in 2010. I can. I find that very convincing. Anyway, let's look at the story as we have it in John's Gospel, chapter 21. It's the third of three appearances of Jesus to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And we see in this picture the disciples have gone back to work. They've gone back fishing. They've gone to Galilee. They're on a boat and they're fishing. There are seven of them, Peter, Doubting Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and then two other disciples who are anonymous. Seven of them in the boat, and they're out at night fishing. People still fish at night. When Hazel and I were on honeymoon many years ago, uh, we were at uh, Sicily and at the resort of Taormina. We had a lovely hotel that had a view right out across the sea. And I can vividly remember each night seeing the little boats, the fishing boats, going out onto the sea with lights, lamps held over the water to gather the the fish together so that they could fish and catch them. People still fish at night, and the disciples are fishing at night, but they catch nothing. And they must be weary, and they must be disappointed, and they must be discouraged, and they'll be hungry. And they take the boat near the shore, and as they get near the shore, they see a figure on the beach. They can't make out who it was. Perhaps it's still a little dark or misty, as often it is in the early morning. And this figure calls out to them, friends, lads, you haven't caught anything, have you? And very reluctantly, they have to confess, no, we've not caught anything. I don't know if we've got any, anyone who fishes here in the congregation this morning. Very popular. People in my family have been very keen fishers. My father was quite a keen fisher at one time. My brothers fished. I once fished. I'll tell you about that in a moment. The thing about fishermen is they're very proud. And if you've got someone who's been out fishing and they've come home, what do you say to them? How many did you catch? So they'll not want to say, sorry, I didn't catch anything. Very proud. What they'll tell you is the size of the one who got away. I fished once myself. I was with a friend of mine in the west of Scotland before I was married and we'd gone up for a week's holiday in his family home on the Isle of Lewis and there was a little stream at the back of the house and he said, let's, let's do some fishing. I've got a couple of rods. So he went fishing and I went fishing and he caught a little fish and he gave it to me for my breakfast. And I was really thrilled about that. And I thought, gosh, if only I could catch a fish, I could give him one for his breakfast. And indeed I did catch a fish and was able to give it to him for his breakfast. I'd like to tell you it was this big. Actually, it was about this big. But it was still a tasty dish at breakfast. But that's fishermen for you. They're proud. And it must have been some confession for them to say, no, we've not caught anything. We've fished all night and we've caught nothing. And then this figure on the beach says, cast your net out to the right of the boat And there must have been something about his authority and about his manner and about the way he spoke that they cast their net to the right of the boat and there's a huge catch, a huge catch, 153 fish. And John, the disciple whom Jesus loves, discerns that it's Jesus 
And he makes this confession, it is the Lord. He uses the divine name, it is the Lord. And Peter, ever the impetuous one, jumps into the water and goes to the shore, and the boat is brought to the shore, and they find Jesus. He's got a fire going, and he's cooking fish. It's a barbecue breakfast that he's got for them, and there's bread there as well, and they're hungry. And he asks them to bring some of their fish, and they count the fish, and there's 153. And so he gives them the fish and the bread. It's a very beautiful story. It's got a quality that's haunting and numinous, mysterious. It's got a quality that speaks to me of someone who was, as it were, an eyewitness when you look at the detail of it. But it raises certain problems. Why had the disciples gone back fishing? Another of the Gospels records that Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem. But they've disobeyed him and they've gone back fishing in Galilee. Was this disobedience? They caught nothing, certainly, so perhaps it was. Or did they need the money? They needed money for their, in, for their dependence, for themselves. They had to go back to work and try and generate an income. But they catch nothing. And so when they obey Jesus and they follow him and they have this wonderful catch, is that a sign that they were judged, as it were, until they obeyed Jesus and then when they obeyed him they had this wonderful catch? And it's certainly true that when we trust Jesus and obey him we are blessed and our lives can be richly fruitful. Is that one of the points that this story is making? And there must be some of you who remember that early in Luke's gospel at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, there's a very similar passage where there's another miraculous catch of fish and where the disciples are called to follow Jesus and become fishers of men. Jesus says, I'll make you fishers of men. And what do they do? They pull their boats up on shore and they leave everything to follow him. And there are commentators who suggest that this passage points to the missionary work of the church to the going out of the church, to the harvesting of souls for Christ. This is a passage that speaks of evangelism and of proclamation and of mission. And I think that's right too. One thing I like about this passage, and Ian was saying last week, how these appearances of Jesus are full of love. And they're full of kindness. And think how kind Jesus is in this story. Kind to his disciples. They're weary, they're tired, they're hungry, they've caught nothing, they're discouraged. He provides a wonderful harvest for them. And he feeds them with a barbecue breakfast. There's a lot of kindness and tenderness and intimacy, marks of Jesus' love for them. Well, we can say all this about the story, but there are three things in particular that I want to say. Things which I think this passage teaches us and that we can take away with us. And the first is this. This passage speaks to us of the reality of the resurrection. The reality of the resurrection. Over the years, lots of alternatives have come forward to explain the resurrection. You probably know them as well as I do. There was a theory at one time that was put forward that they went, the disciples went to the wrong tomb. It was dark that first Easter morning and they simply made a mistake and they went to a tomb that was empty. I think that could have been very quickly put right. You could hardly sustain that as an argument. 
the end of the 19th century, a number of historians came forward with the theory that Jesus was not dead. He'd actually swooned on the cross and been buried alive. And in the cool of the tomb, he revived. He came alive and he pushed the stone away and he walked out. I'm tempted to say, pull the other one. You can't possibly argue that as a convincing case. Perhaps more seriously, people have said, well, the body of Jesus was stolen. The Romans stole the body, or the Jews stole the body. And that's why the tomb was empty. But once the church started to get going and was such an irritation to the Romans and such an irritation to the Jews, all they had to do was to produce the body and the church would have collapsed. People have said the resurrection of Jesus was a ghost. It was a hallucination. It was a vision of some kind that came to the disciples. But it seems to me this is the very thing that the gospel accounts deny. It's not given to us to think that it was a ghost or a hallucination. Now I want to put this to you. I don't know what you think about the resurrection. Some of you may accept the bodily resurrection of Christ and you have no difficulty over that. Others of you perhaps still wrestling with it because it's such a hard, tough thing to believe. Put that to one side and accept, if you will, what I'm about to say. I want to argue it is an irrefutable historical fact that the first Christians believed Jesus to be the divine son of God who had been raised to life bodily. That's what they believed. Now, if you like, whether whether it's true or not, I've asked you to put to one side. The fact is, that's what they believed. And the New Testament shouts that so clearly to us. The evidence in the New Testament is overwhelming to that, uh, that contention that Jesus is the Son of God, the crucified Son of God who was bodily raised to life. That's what they believed. And I think that's an irrefutable historical fact, and I find that very persuasive. So the reality of the resurrection is the first point. The second one, it really was Jesus who came back. It was Jesus who came back. Jesus who had taught them. Jesus who had loved and ministered to them. Jesus who had died for them. Jesus who had died to save them. It was him who had come back and had been raised. So that what happens on the cross is authenticated and Jesus truly is victorious over death. We can be forgiven of our sins. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus is God. There is no other God other than the God we see in the face of Jesus. At the Oxford Centre for Mission Studies this week where I'm chaplain, we received an email from Nepal, from a Dr. Krishna Sharma, who was one of our PhD students. And he's now principal of the Nepal Theological College. And he wrote a long email, very dramatic, very distressing, of the destruction in Kathmandu and and more widely. Not just the beautiful temples and the historic buildings and everything, but churches have been destroyed. Church families have lost uh, members and there's deep and widespread distress. And at the end he hints that one of the lessons perhaps is to see something of the frailty of uh, human life. And he ended his email with this. There is no protection in the world anywhere but in God through Christ. 
And I thought that was a quite remarkable testimony coming out of this disaster that's been on our news all week and still filling our minds and our prayers. It was really Jesus who was raised to life, and we can trust him. And then my third point, and I wonder if I can persuade you of this. I think this story here, in a real sense, paints a very ordinary scene for us. The disciples have gone back to work. They've gone back to what was familiar to them. They've gone back to their everyday occupation, to their routines, to their habits. They've gone back to what they know. In a sense, they've gone back to the ordinary. And yet, in that context, the risen Christ encounters them. And he blesses them. And I think that's a lesson for us. When we return to the ordinary, when we go back home, or we're with family, or we're with friends, or we're with neighbors, or we've gone to work at the shop, or the office, or the school, or we're working in the library, in our ordinary, everyday occupations and contexts, we can be encountered by the risen Christ. He can come to us and engage with us, and we can relate to him, and we can know him, and we can serve him. Sarah read that very important verse that comes at the end of chapter 20, which really is the uh, key verse for the whole of the end of John's gospel. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's transforming. If Jesus was bodily raised from the dead, it changes everything. We've got our general election on Thursday. And I hope that all of us who can will vote. I think that's very important, whatever party we vote for. But it's been such a cost to so many that have procured us free elections over the years. And so many parts of the world would give anything to have the opportunity of free elections that we have. So I hope we'll vote. I don't know what you thought of the election campaign. I heard a politician interviewed this week, and he said... He said, if I'm honest, yes, of course there are important decisions taken by government. Of course there are. But he said, if I'm honest, for an awful lot of people, it doesn't make that much difference. Their ordinary lives just go on. I think there's a little bit of truth in that, though it shouldn't stop us voting. But this truth, this resurrection truth that Jesus, who was crucified, is raised to life, that makes a difference. That makes all the difference. And everything changes. Friends, we must decide for ourselves. We can only decide for ourselves. I can't decide for you. I can't decide for anyone else what I believe. You can't decide for anyone else either, but you can decide for yourself what you believe. And we need to face that decision again and again and again and again and make our decision. And so let me end with a little story, which I believe is a true story told by Richard Buse, who at one time was rector of All Souls, Langham Place. And I've always thought this was rather a good story. On one occasion, he was leaving church in a taxi to go to a meeting. And he must have had on his clerical collar, or he'd come from the church. The taxi driver knew that he was a Christian. And when he came to pay the taxi driver at the end of the journey, the taxi driver said to him, You know, I'm so sorry for you Christians. And Richard Buse said, what, what do you mean? 
And the taxi driver said, I'm so sorry for you Christians. There you are, you go about all your lives doing good and serving others and often sacrificing for others and you believe in this Jesus to be alive and it's a lot of nonsense and it's a huge misconception. And of course when you die there's nothing. And I just feel so sorry for you Christians. And this is what Richard Buse said. He said, if you're right and I'm wrong, When I die, there's nothing. Nothing. And I've lived all my life believing in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, seeking to serve him, seeking to obey him, to be faithful to him, trying to bring other people to know him. And when I die, nothing. And you know, I won't even know. But if I'm right and you're wrong, you will stand before Jesus Christ whom you have denied, whom you have turned away from repeatedly and whose invitation to follow you and believe in him and accept him as Savior and Lord, you have turned down again and again. Now what will you say? And Richard View said, the taxi driver sped off without saying anything. Amen and may God add his blessing to this preaching of his holy word. And to his name be the glory and praise, now and forever. Amen.